The time is at hand. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. One of the many spirits said to haunt the area. You know, we'll have to prepare for the next one. That will get attention this time. Unknown animal attack. We need a great reset. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. From 659 feet high up in the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia. This is In Dark Places. I'm Junebug Fugit. Welcome. So the United States shot down that Chinese spy balloon last week and pretty much every day since then they've been shooting down some kind of unidentified objects out of the sky. I'm recording this on February 12th. And as of recording this, there's been three of those unidentified objects along with the balloon, which makes four things. My thought with these unidentified objects is that they're cooking up some kind of a new narrative. My guess is they're getting ready to play the alien invasion card, and that's going to be the reason for the next set of lockdowns. You can't get out of your house because the aliens might see you. Don't be deceived. They're pretty much saying that it's an all-out invasion at this point because it's becoming an everyday thing. So my thought is that just like they created climate change by spraying junk into the sky, they're also spinning this web of some kind of a invasion type scenario. And they're probably just shooting down their own drones or whatever those things are. Have you heard of Project Blue Beam? Project Bluebeam is a conspiracy theory which was theorized in the 80s and 90s that NASA, or another covert government-related agency, has been planning to implement a New Age religion with the Antichrist as the leader and to start a new world order via a technologically simulated second coming using holograms. The allegations were first theorized in 1994 by journalist Serge Monast and later published in his book, which is now almost impossible to obtain. The book was called Project Blue Beam. NASA and supporters of the theory alleged that Monast and another unnamed journalist, who both died of heart attacks in 1996, coincidence? Probably not, were in fact assassinated. Yeah, that'd be my guess. And that the Canadian government kidnapped Monast's daughter in an effort to stop him from investigating Project Bluebeam. In the early 90s, Monast spoke to the French TV host Richard Glenn of Estreme Experimental, and he explained his theory, Project Bluebeam. It explains how events that were happening at the time, particularly films being made, Space Odyssey, Star Wars, Star Trek, etc., were being used to prepare people psychologically for the conspiracy's dramatic conclusion, a fake alien invasion. 
It originally played on fears of religion, advanced technology that most people at the time, including its author, did not understand. Although now, 30 years later, in 2023, we can fully comprehend. The theorist's death from a supposed middle-aged heart attack, although perfectly healthy, cut off its possible spread early and left it short on source material in English, since the author was French and the internet was not available. People could not translate and share the theory until now. But yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Don't be deceived by this junk that the mainstream media and the elites and everybody try to make you believe. Question everything. And while you're at it, question me too. Go ahead. Do your own research. You might be surprised. Speaking of all these flying objects that have been shot down, I get the feeling that they could be a distraction to keep your attention away from the massive amounts of deadly vinyl chloride the government decided to burn over Palestine, Ohio's farmland area. I don't watch the news, but I get the feeling that they're not saying a whole lot about this on the news because everyone I've talked to about it, they don't have a clue. No one's heard about this train derailment. Did you hear about it? Animals are sick and dying. People are getting sick. All because of this train derailment on February 3rd. The more I hear about it, the more it's sounding like it was not an accident. I saw a map of all of the areas affected by the radiation in the air. And the entire state of West Virginia was in the red. Except for this little slither of section in the county where I'm at. And then the county next to us. But... There's, I think, 55 counties in West Virginia, if my math is correct. And there's two counties that are not affected by the radiation. The majority of Pennsylvania is affected by this, and pretty much any state east of Ohio. And the really fun part is that it's in the Ohio River, which goes into the Mississippi River, the Tennessee River, Arkansas White Red River Basin, Missouri River Basin pretty much flows all through the country and for a government that is obsessed with worshiping Mother Earth they're being awfully tight-lipped about it kinda just like they are with all of the deliberate attacks and burning down of the food processing plants all over the country Fluffy agrees and the last I heard, there was like 120 of these food processing plants that have burned down. And it grows like pretty much every week. Our friend Steve was telling me about a show on Netflix called White Noise. I've not seen it. But he said that there was a train derailment in Ohio in this show. And tons of nuclear waste products and stuff were spilled into the atmosphere and environment and stuff. And it seems a little convenient. Predictive programming. I saw a press conference where they were talking to this EPA guy. I can't find his name right now, but he was basically at the press conference and all these reporters were asking him if it was safe to be around Ohio. And he, yeah, it's safe, don't worry about it. And then he just started going on, instead of like talking about the cleanup efforts and stuff, he started going on about how all the train conductors and people with the railroad are all white supremacists. 
So that's good to know. That's going to help us out there. But yeah, look into that. Ohio train derailment. Kind of fishy. And now, here is the Nicholas Cage Meltdown of the Week. It was the night after you showed up here to come see this place for the first time. I mean, it was just a couple of months ago you came here to look at it, right? And the boys across the street said they saw your same truck in this parking lot the day before. Did you do it? Did I do it? Did you do it? Did I do Ray, what? Did you do it? Did, did I do what? The did pig? you do it? Howard. <laughs> Ray, did you do it? Did I do Did you do it? Did I do Ray, what? Did you do it? Did I do what? Did you do it? Did I do what? <laughs> I know you didn't do it. <laughs> I think all of the news this week revolves around the Super Bowl and I hate sports and the demonic rituals at the Super Bowl are not really my thing so I'm just going to skip over the news segment for this week I think. Anyway this week on the show we are talking about haunted and or cursed movies. You be the judge I haven't really came up with a good title for it yet but we're going to be talking about movies that had real life hauntings on their sets and were kind of doomed from the get go and cursed and all that good stuff. And I think it ties in nicely with Mr. Haunted's top 10 for this week. In my top 10 movie list, I'm going to include one mobster movie and one. Western, and this is my mobster gangster movie, Goodfellas. Goodfellas uh, was from 1990, and it's the story of Henry Hill and his life in the mob, covering his relationship with his wife Karen Hill, Karen, and his mob partners Jimmy Conway and Tommy DeVito in the Italian American crime syndicate. So the story's good. The story's true. The dialogue, holy mackerels, the soundtrack, Goodfellas makes my top ten movie list. Thank you. I am a sucker for time travel movies. I have a couple in here, and this movie that makes my top ten is a little something called Back to the Future. This movie came out in 1985, and it tells the story of poor little Marty McFly, a 17-year-old high school student that is accidentally sent 30 years into the past in a time-traveling DeLorean invented by his close friend, the maverick scientist Doc Brown. And <laughs> one of my time travel movies that made the list.
I said I'm a sucker for time travel movies and throw a little romance in there. And we have Somewhere in Time, a 1980 movie, um, a Chicago playwright played by Christopher Reeve uses self-hypnosis to travel back in time and meet the actress uh, Jane Seymour, whose vintage portrait hangs in a grand hotel. There's about 10 Goosebumps moments in this, if you've never seen it before. Somewhere in time. Thank you. Holy mackerels. Poltergeist. Poltergeist. I, I consider my top 10 movies, um, not that they're world-changing or anything, but if they're on TV, I'm going to watch them through commercials. Even though I have the uh, DVD, I'm going to watch it every time it's on. And Poltergeist is one of those movies. Um, very scary. Funny. They're here. Uh, the real skeletons in the pool. Terrifying. So Poltergeist goes down in my top 10 favorite movies. Thank you. If that sound is familiar to anyone, you'll know this top 10 favorite movie of mine, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's from 1977. And I especially like this movie because it started out with kind of like, like haunting things, like stuff was happening in their house caused by the aliens, which I think might be true in real life. But this uh, story is about Roy Neary, didn't know that was his name, an Indiana electric lineman finds his quiet and ordinary daily life turned upside down after a close encounter with a UFO spurring him to an obsessed cross-country quest for answers as a momentous event approaches. And then, spoiler alert, <laughs> when all the um, missing people started coming out of that ship. Holy mackerels. Was that cool? And who didn't make, uh, <laughs> what was that, that tower out of potatoes when you were a little kid? Jimmy, what are you doing? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, some of you are turning the dial, and some of you are dancing in your seats right now. Grease was one of those movies when you're a kid and everybody in school. How many times did you see Grease? I saw it five times. I saw it three times. Holy mackerels, people just kept going back to see this movie. In this movie, um, it was 1978, uh, good girl Sandy Olsen and greaser Danny Zuko fell in love over the summer when they unexpectedly discover they're now in the same high school. Will they be able to rekindle their romance? What happened to the Danny Zuko I met at the beach? Anyways, Grease, 
uh, very influential to me. Um, not the dancing part so much, but uh, I wanted to be like Danny Zuko, and uh, he's probably the cause of me smoking. Danny Zuko, don't smoke, kids. All right, don't kill me. Titanic made my top ten movie list. And I'll tell you a little something about Titanic, which was released in 1997. That's funny because to me it's a new movie and it's uh, 25 years old, over 25 years old. And it's about a 17-year-old aristocrat falls in love with a kind but poor artist aboard the luxurious, ill-fated RMS Titanic. And the uh, funny thing about this is the uh, Titanic exhibit came to a casino near me years ago, maybe over 10 years ago, and I just got the feeling, I, this wasn't when it was um, publicized that it was supposedly haunted, and as I was looking at some of the artifacts, I got that freaking, that uh, familiar chill goosebumps when you're in a haunted place, and I asked the um, tour guide, I said, is this place haunted? As a joke. And he says, I'll talk to you later. And um, I had a little chat with him. And um, I may or may have not, at least I had to agree not to talk about it. I may or may not, hypothetically, um, did a little investigation of the um, Titanic exhibit. And um, hypothetically came up with a name that we were able to match with the passenger records. But it was a person who survived. So the question is, is the person that survived the Titanic still hanging around the exhibit? I don't know. But but Titanic is one of the movies I quote all day long. And uh, I don't know. It's good and corny. Thank you. Titanic! This movie is called Pump Up the Volume from 1990, and it, uh, it says Mark runs a pirate radio station and causes an uproar when he speaks his mind and enthralls fellow teens, and this stars uh, Christian Slater, and this, I just love the soundtrack of this movie, um, and especially at the end where um, he was an influence to other people that started their own thing, and that's what um, I try to be, uh, and I try to change the world so much because I can only do so much but when you influence somebody um, that makes me happy so pump up the volume if you ever saw it I think you'd like it This movie from 1997 the game after a wealthy San Francisco banker is given an opportunity to participate in a mysterious game his life is turned upside down as he begins to question if it might really be a concealed conspiracy to destroy him directed by David Fincher and stars Michael Douglas and Sean Penn this movie I just watched yesterday again and uh, I like it because 
um, it, it, it gives you the, um, you know, if you go out of your comfort zone, what are you really capable of? So, uh, I would recommend watching The Game by Michael Douglas, and starring Michael Douglas and Sean Penn, sorry. And, uh, and there's a big twist at the end if you never saw it. And um, holy mackerels, watch The Game. Thank you. From 1979, The Wanderers. The Wanderers is a teenage Italian gang in Bronx, New York, uh, in 1963. They have their confrontations with other gangs. Drugs and weapons are uncool. Adult life awaits them. That's the worst description of this movie I've ever seen. Uh, it stars uh, Ken Wall, Karen Allen, and... This is one of those movies that were, uh, I was on Showtime or HBO when I was a kid. And back then, they would just play the same movie all day long, over and over again. So for a whole summer, I watched this movie over and over again. Great soundtrack, great story, great fight scenes, great, um, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> they bring it right into New York City, 1963. And I want you to watch The Wanderers. Now, I promised you a Western, but I went to 11 favorite movies. I hope Junebug's not counting, because I cannot put a ten, top 10 list without including The Unforgiven. 1992, retired Old West gunslinger William Money reluctantly takes on one last job with the help of his old partner, Ned Logan, and a young man named the Schofield Kid. Uh, directed and stars Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, The Unforgiven. He didn't do anything to deserve to get shot. It was like the only Western I saw that I was scared. It was like a horror movie. Western. Holy mackerels. Go see The Unforgiven. 1992. Buckle my shoe. I was telling Jimmy that it would be kind of fun if he tells his top 10 favorite movies and then I can tell mine and then we'll jump into the haunted cursed movies and as I'm recording this I haven't listened to Jimmy's top 10 yet I'll be hearing it for the first time as you guys hear it it's gonna be fun so I thought it'd be neat to kind of compare his top 10 with my top 10 and it would be like a little cute gender reveal party Kinda, I guess. So I think I've talked about my favorite movie a hundred times on the show already. But I've said it numerous times. So I guess the thing to do would be to kind of start mine from number one and go down to number ten. I don't know. Is that what Jimmy did? I don't know. But mine's going to go from one to ten because you already know that my favorite movie is Tombstone. I still watch this movie at least ten times a year. I saw it when I was a senior in high school. Me and a bunch of my buddies went to the theater to go see it. And we were just hooked on it ever since. Like, we loved all the one-liners and stuff like that. Even, like, the minor characters and stuff in the movie. They all have great one-liners. Really good movie. I'm pretty sure I've probably talked about my number two favorite movie, too. Young Guns. 
and like Tombstone it came out right at the perfect time I was like 16 17 years old me and all my buddies were like Billy the Kid and all of his uh, regulators it's a perfect pal movie forever it was tied with my number one I couldn't decide if I liked Tombstone better or Young Guns and it's definitely Tombstone though <laughs> and you might be thinking that hey there was a sequel to Young Guns right there's a Young Guns 1 and 2 and I hear there's a part 3 coming for some reason so I think the way to address this is that a lot of my top 10 list has to do with sequels and I just kind of view those as being one big long continuous movie so Young Guns 1 and 2 is my second favorite movie and speaking of those sequels my number 3 favorite movie is Back to the Future. I love all three of them. It's like one big long continuous movie. And it's great. I've seen Back to the Future about 75 times as well, I think. My number four favorite movie is Sling Blade. I reckon. I talk about that one a lot too, don't I? I think so. I tend to not like any kind of modern things. I stick with stuff from the 90s mostly because after the 90s everything just went really downhill. My number five favorite movie is a Nicolas Cage movie. The Family Man. Love me some Family Man. Family Man's like one of those alternate universe reality type movies. What if type scenarios where Nicolas Cage lets the girl of his dreams get away and then he realizes what it would have been like if he would have kept her and stuff like that. I love it. My number six movie probably shouldn't come as much of a surprise. The Mothman Prophecies. My number seven, I think it might be my final time travel related movie, maybe, is Groundhog Day. We just watched that one a couple weeks ago. Groundhog Day. We watch it every year, whenever it's February 2nd. And I love it too. Bill Murray is hilarious and... It deals with the time travel, time loop type thing that I'm crazy about. So, can't go wrong with Groundhog Day. Number eight would have to be the entire Star Wars collection, I think. Especially episode four, five, and six. Don't care much for the Disney ones. I'm not one of those diehard Star Wars guys that has to have everything. But I do like me some Star Wars. Number nine would have to be... A fun little alien movie called Signs. Mel Gibson. Good stuff. And number 10 is Armageddon. It had a great soundtrack and it was a great movie. I loved it. And when I was compiling my list, I realized that it was pretty impossible to come up with 10 movies I like best. Because number 11 would be Batman. All of them. I think there's like 12 Batman movies now. I love Batman. He's my favorite comic book guy. I think the probably the first original 89 Michael Keaton Batman would probably have to be my favorite because that was the one that kind of got me into Batman so heavily. I was 12 years old and it was perfect. And I thought I was Batman for the rest of that summer. Number 12, Ghost. Number 13, The Naked Gun Movies. Leslie Nielsen was awesome. He's a funny guy. Uh, 14, The Time Machine. 15, The Day After Tomorrow. 16, Titanic. There's so many great movies. It's uh, 
hard to narrow it down to 10. But I think it's probably my favorite 10, I guess. I've watched those more than any other movies, and those are my favorites. So hard to decide. Uh, Porky's. Grease. Gremlins. A lot of good movies. Peggy Sue Got Married. My other favorite Nicolas Cage movie. The first Nicolas Cage that I saw in Time Travel. Oh my goodness. The Time Traveler's Wife. Twelve Monkeys. The Lake House. Frequency. Ghostbusters. E.T. The Goonies. Terminator. Splash. Die Hard. Nightmare on Elm Street. Poltergeist. Salem's Lot. Silver Bullet. The Outsiders. Beverly Hills Cop. Time Cop. I think I've got like 30 movies on my top 10. The Lost Boys. Starman. Independence Day. Forrest Gump. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Good movies. Thanks for playing long. Hey, Chom, where's Barbara and the kids? We got this new HD DVR, The Hopper. That one DVR lets us record up to six shows at once and play them back in any room. The Hopper. Yeah, The Hopper. The Hopper? Introducing the Hopper, one HD DVR for the whole home, free from dish. And now for our feature presentation. There have been countless scary movies produced over the last hundred years or so, but have you heard about some of the real-life ghostly activity and curses revolving around some of Hollywood's most famous scary movies? The Conjuring franchise is one horror series that claims to be based on true stories from the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. The first spin-off film, titled Annabelle, was released in 2014 and was directed by John R. Leonetti. Leonetti claims to have experienced not one, but two supernatural occurrences while on the set. The first came when he found three lines drawn through a dusty window, which looked like finger marks. The second came when they shot their first scene with a demon. The demon actor went up the elevator and headed to where the other actors were. But as he was walking down the hallway, a giant glass light fixture fell on an actor's head who was playing a janitor. To make matters even creepier, in the script, that same hallway is where the demon kills the janitor. The first time the cast of Annabelle Comes Home were on set together, the lights went out and they didn't come back on until the actors asked, Annabelle, are you there? When the lights came back on, 12-year-old McKenna Grace had a heavy nosebleed. William Friedkin's 1973 film adaptation of the best-selling novel, The Exorcist, has gone on to be an iconic piece of pop culture. Besides being the first horror flick to be nominated at the Academy Awards for Best Picture, it's also heralded by many as being one of the scariest to boot. What many people may not know, however, are the unsettling amount of freak accidents that happened before, during, and after the production of the film. Along with nine deaths associated with the movie, 
actress Ellen Bertson wrenched her back and Jason Miller's youngest son, Jordan, was struck and nearly killed by a man on a motorbike. If you think that's bizarre, just wait. As Fradkin told Entertainment Weekly, one day at four in the morning, I got a call from a production manager and he said, don't bother coming to work this morning. The set is burning to the ground right as we speak. And sure enough, the entire set burned to the ground after a pigeon flew into a light box and caused a short circuit. Except for one particular area, the bedroom used for the exorcism scenes. While all of this is enough to make one give up on the project entirely, Fradkin isn't wholly convinced of any otherworldly influences. And, as Entertainment Weekly summarizes, he dismisses any notion the set was actually haunted. The Poltergeist Curse, one of my favorite movies, supposedly started after Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper decided to use real skeletons during the scene where Joe Beth Williams' character falls into a swimming pool filled with skeletons. Unbeknownst to the cast, the skeletons were actually real since they were cheaper than fake ones. Will Sampson also blessed the set of the sequel, which apparently didn't work since Sampson soon died from a kidney transplant. Julian Beck died from stomach cancer. And Heather O'Rourke died at the age of 12 due to cardiac arrest and septic shock. After the release of the first film, Actress Dominique Dunn was strangled to death by her boyfriend and, in 2009, an actor who played a construction worker in the original film was chopped into pieces by an ex-convict. Ghost technically isn't a horror film per se, but the story behind the film is too terrifying to not include. Ghost is the film from 1990 that revolves around a man getting murdered only to return as a ghost to help his lover. The film starred Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. It was awesome. But it's also believed that Heather O'Rourke's ghost was on the set of the film. O'Rourke passed away months before Poltergeist 3 was released. People working on the film claimed to have heard someone running up on the catwalks and also a child laughing. It's believed that O'Rourke enjoyed climbing on the catwalks, and Ghost was filmed at Stage 19, where O'Rourke filmed episodes of Happy Days. Rosemary's Baby is another film that is linked to real-life tragedy. Composer Kurtzoff Kameda died in 1969 after falling off a rocky slope at a party. Kameda entered a coma for four months until he died. This is very similar to a character's death in Ira Levin's novel, Rosemary's Baby. Producer William Castle was also hospitalized for kidney stones and supposedly hallucinated in the hospital and yelled, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife! Leading up to her death, Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, is said to have become interested in the occult after not getting the lead role in Rosemary's Baby. A pregnant Tate was brutally stabbed to death by the Manson family in 1969, which was rumored as a ritual sacrifice. John Lennon was even killed across the street from the Dakota, 
where Rosemary's Baby was filmed. If a story goes by the name of The Omen, you better believe it'll have some ominous tales attached to it. The 1976 supernatural flick revolves around Damien, played by Harvey Spencer Stevens, the son of the devil. While this may sound like spooky mumbo-jumbo, many believe that the movie set itself was cursed with tragic events occurring even past production. According to Bloody Disgusting, two months before filming, Gregory Peck, who plays Damien's father, suffered his own loss. His son committed suicide. As the outlet notes, the subject matter in the movie even deals with Peck's character struggling to kill his son. Carrying on, nonetheless, once production finally started, two separate planes that flew Peck and the movie screenwriter David Seltzer were both struck by lightning. Not long after, executive producer Mace Newfield's plane was also struck by lightning. In a final spooky airplane fiasco, Gregory Peck canceled a flight reservation of his own, only to later learn that his plane had crashed and killed everyone that was on board. Somehow, everyone still decided it was a good idea to film the flick that gave them infinite bad omens. And on the first day of shooting, a head-on collision would injure a lot of crew members. While two weeks after filming completed, the zookeeper in charge of the baboon scene at the zoo was eaten alive by a lion. The position stars Jeffrey Dean Morgan, that one guy, as a father who buys his daughter an antique box which happens to house a malicious spirit. The film was inspired by a true story which involved the actual box being sold on eBay, only for the owner to start experiencing unbelievable phenomenons. Morgan was skeptical of the report, but after witnessing lights explode on the set and feeling cold drafts come over the set while they were filming important scenes, he no doubt became a bit less skeptical. The production crew was also holding all of the film's props in storage, which unexplainably burnt to the ground. The creation of The Crow is a bleak story. Writer James O'Barr conceived the cult comic book after his fiancée's death when he was just 18, a way to cope after suffering such a tragedy. Per Sci-Fi Wire, the narrative follows a murdered man who has come back from the dead to avenge his and his fiancée's brutal murders. Pretty bleak, right? Well, the movie adaptation was just as macabre. Remember that? <laughs> In early 1993, filming began with Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, cast as the lead. There's plenty of material if you want to find a curse in the making of the movie The Crow, explained author Bridget Bice to Cursed Films. When they set up pre-production offices, they had a voicemail that said, Don't make this movie, bad things will happen. However, it wasn't the serious burns that carpenter Jim Martashushi suffered on the first day of filming that had people talking, or the countless other freak accidents. 
No, it was the death of Brandon Lee himself that left a mark on the acting world. Sci-Fi Wire says, The day Lee was to be shot by a prop gun, a slug had become lodged in the barrel, shooting the blank, propelled the slug. Tragically, Lee fell to the ground, and within hours, he passed away. As the outlet goes on to note, in another unsettling parallel to this story, Lee had been set to marry his own real-life fiance later that month. The Twilight Zone was already believed to place a curse on its stars leading to mysterious deaths, and it culminated when a helicopter crash on the set of the movie adaptation killed actor Vic Morrow and two child actors, the same show that inspired Disney's Tower of Terror. After the accident, Warner Brothers Vice President John Sylvia created a committee to craft safety regulations for every single aspect of the film industry. You always feel like someone is going to die on the set, said actor Laura Harrington about Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. The cursed film saw near-death experiences for cameramen and stuntmen, as well as a hurricane, which hit the set during production. Camera assistant Sylvia Goldelitti would later say, Every day we had security because the movie was a very dangerous movie. The man who killed Don Quixote was bounced around in production Hades for decades. Multiple attempts with different sources of financing kept falling through at the last minute. It was finally made in 2018 starring Adam Driver and the struggle for director Terry Gilliam to make the film happen was later chronicled in the documentary He Dreams of Giants. While The Ring got mixed reviews with fans and critics, the second film in 2005 also got negative reviews. The Ring was a remake of the Japanese horror film called Ringu, directed by Hideo Nakata. The remake, however, was directed by Gore Verminsky and starred Naomi Watts, Martin Henderson, and Brian Cox. During a behind-the-scenes featurette for the movie, Naomi Watts claimed to have felt weird vibrations on the set. The set was also completely flooded at one point, which is strange since Samara drowned to death at the bottom of the well. The creepiest thing surrounding 2011's horror flick, The Innkeepers, is that the hotel that inspired the haunted tale is actually in a movie. As director Ty West revealed to IndieWire, he came across the Yankee Peddler Inn after placing his crew there during production of his previous film, The House of the Devil. It was the best option, he explained. It was the cheapest and the nicest place we could find and about 25 minutes from our location. Sure enough, whenever they'd retire back to the inn after shooting the satanic flick, weirder stuff would happen back at the hotel. After speaking with the staff, Wes found out that the whole town believes it's haunted. It suddenly hit the director, why not make a movie we lived? Along with doors closing on their own, TVs that would turn off and on, and lights burning out, everyone on crew has very vivid dreams every night, which is really strange. Along with actress Sarah Paxton, waking up in the middle of the night thinking someone was in the room with her. Allegedly, everyone had stories. As of West, 
the director was too preoccupied with completing the flick. The exorcism of Emily Rose's lead star, Jennifer Carpenter, says she was haunted by a ghost that seemed to have a taste for the musical. She told Dread Central that while she was working on the 2005 film, a radio would continually turn on by itself whenever she got home. Waterworld was a production disaster with budgetary issues costing almost double the allotted sum. At the last minute, Joss Whedon was brought in to make heavy script changes, but he had to work alongside actor Kevin Costner, and the process was something that Joss ended up calling seven weeks of torture. Additionally, the ocean scenes led to multiple jellyfish stings for some of the cast. Jim Cavazell played Jesus in Passion of the Christ and endured a lot of hardship while filming the role. Among the incidents on the set, he was struck by lightning, dislocated his shoulder, got pneumonia and a lung infection, and suffered debilitating headaches. What's more, he wasn't even the only person to be struck by lightning on set. Assistant John McAlini was also struck for the second time in his life. The odds on that are astronomical. The Wizard of Oz wasn't quite a fairy tale for the actors involved. Jack Haley was called in to play the Tin Man, but only after the original actor was hospitalized for being severely allergic to the aluminum dust used to turn his skin silver. The makeup was reconfigured, but it still caused an eye infection for the second actor. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, was severely burned on the set in a pyrotechnic accident. The Dark Knight franchise is considered cursed for several reasons. First of all, actor Heath Ledger, who played the Joker, died of an accidental overdose prior to the Dark Knight's release. Additionally, one of the special effects coordinators died during a car accident while filming. And then there was the tragic shooting in Aurora, Colorado during a screening of the sequel, The Dark Knight Rises. In 1977, writer Jay Anson shocked the public with the release of his book, The Amityville Horror, which depicted real-life hauntings at the house of 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, a suburb of Long Island, New York. But in 1979, the epitomous movie came out. Strangely enough, the film sets of both the original flick and its remake in 2005 were home to some paranormal occurrences. According to Bloody Disgusting, director Stuart Rosenberg tried getting approval to shoot the original film in the house itself, but the city denied entrance, wanting distance from any possible negative press. The movie's lead, James Brolin, initially didn't want to sign on to the project, worried that the flick would be too hokey. Nevertheless, Rosenberg persisted, giving Brolin the book to read at home. During a particularly scary climax, Brolin recalls a pair of his pants, which he had hung up, suddenly dropping to the ground. He took that as a sign to accept the part. While the trouser scenario could have been chalked up to just one freak event, details of the remake's production take the spook factor even further. As actor Ryan Reynolds told MovieWeb, 
a lot of the crew were waking up at 3.15 in the morning, which was when all the atrocities in the house took place each time. If that's not all, Kathy Lutz, the woman who originally moved into the real-life nightmare, died during the filming of the remake. Coincidence or just plain eerie? And that's about all the big show for this week. Thanks, as always, Mr. Jimmy Haunted. And thank you for tuning in again. If you've got a true scary story you'd like to send in or you'd like to be a guest on the show, send an email to endourplacespod at hotmail.com. We'll see you right here next week. God bless you guys.